her in whatever she may need for you, for she has been a patron to many and to myself. So one of the controversies that comes up in this verse is what does Paul mean that Phoebe was a servant of the church? Um, this kind of begins to get into church polity questions. Can females be deacons? And, um, and that that's kind of will drive how you interpret that because the word diakonos, which is where we get deacon from, means servant. That's, that's what it means. But when used in the context of the church, it takes on a special role. It takes on a role of an office of people who are part of the church and are tending to the church uh, in material and in, uh, in physical kind of ways. So we go to Acts chapter six and we see the, the calling of the, uh, the seven to serve the, the widows. And so the question is, was Phoebe a deacon? And so I'll give you just our church's approach to this question. We changed our constitution a few years ago because we said, yes, females can be deacons. And the reason we said that is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives a list of qualifications for elders, and then he gives a list of qualifications for deacons. And so when we looked at that, we said that qualifications for elders are all male-centered. Husband of one and wife, you can't be a woman and be the husband of one wife. It's just not possible. There was no other thing in there that made it sound like females were included in those list of qualifications. So we said then the office of elder is reserved for males only. But when we looked at the office of deacon, it gives similar qualifications, but right in the middle of it, it says women, and it gives some qualifications for women. The word there for women is gune, which is where we get like gynecologists. It's that prefix. And the problem is it could be women in general, or it could be wives. And so you have to make an interpretive decision there. So some people who don't believe that women can be deacons would take that as women, as wives. So what they're saying is deacons have to be like this and their wives have to be like that. We decided as an elder board that that was not the best reading for it because who's in the more sensitive position of leadership in the church, the deacons or the elders? The elders are doing counseling and interventions and stuff. If they were going to qualify the wives, it would seem to us that the elders' wives would have to have tighter qualifications than the deacons. And so we understand that when we look at that, we take that word gune to mean women. So what Paul is saying when he's given the qualifications for deacons, he's saying uh, deacons should be like this, deaconesses, make sure they have these characteristics and that kind of thing. So that's why we say that women can be deacons. And then chapter 16 in Romans here is just an example of it. Phoebe was a deaconess. That, that's the simplest way to understand this. The word that's translated there is diakonon, which is feminine version of deacon. And if we're just going to say that Phoebe was a great servant of the church, well, in verse 12, Perseus is said to have worked hard, and he doesn't get called a deacon. He just is said to work hard. So it just seemed like you know, these are not, by the way, ironclad, and everybody must agree. This is just kind of like trying to read the flavor of the thing. So Phoebe, we would take to be a deaconess. But there's a whole lot more about Phoebe that's much more interesting. He, he, Paul tells the Romans, receive her in a manner worthy of the saints. Would you like to be received in a manner worthy of the saints? The saints would receive you in this wonderful way. And then help her. Whatever she needs, help her. Why? Because she's been a patron. She has supported many people, including myself. So Phoebe is just this example. That's why he commends her, he personally commends her. And, and she just is an outstanding person. The next people that we need to just touch really quick is Prisca and Aquila, verses three and four. Um, 
is that Priscilla and Aquila, or is that two different people because it's not Priscilla, it's Prisca? Well, the simple answer to that is Prisca is what's called the diminutive of Priscilla. So like my middle child is named Bernadette, but the diminutive of Bernadette is we call her Bernie. So the same thing is happening here is Priscilla, the diminutive is Prisca, and she would probably be better known by her diminutive among the Romans because that's the church she came from. We see in, in, First Corinthians, or in Acts 18 that, that they met uh, Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth because Claudius had kicked them out of Rome. So they were from the Roman church, so that makes sense. So that, that is Priscilla and Aquila. The next one that's worth mentioning, just to clarify, is Epinetus uh, in verse 5. It says that he was the first fruits of Asia, so the first convert to Christ in Asia. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean that when Paul and Barnabas traveled to Asia, he was the first person to profess faith in Christ? Is it possible that he traveled from, um, from Asia, some, wherever he was in Asia? Asia, by the way, is modern-day Turkey to either Antioch and heard the gospel or maybe to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Um, I don't know that that's probably the best way because it's the first convert in Asia, not from Asia. So I would take this to mean that when Paul and Barnabas first got to Asia and preached the gospel, um, he was the first person to become a believer. Um, minor point. Now for the most contentious one, Andronicus and Junia. Um, Junia is a Latin name that's transliterated into Greek, and the way it's transliterated, it could be either male or female. And so there's a lot of questions. Is Junia a male or a female? Is it Andronicus and Junia are two like co-workers, or are they husband and wife, or something like that? Um, and this, by the way, is not a minor point. This brings up a lot of issues I'll, I'll explain in a moment. Uh, Daniel B. Wallace, a great New Testament scholar, did a lot of work on this. He's still continuing to work on it. And just to sum up what he says, after looking at all the information, he says, the data on whether Junia is feminine or masculine are simply inadequate to make a decisive judgment. Though what minimal data we have suggests a feminine name. Although most modern translations regard the name as masculine, the data simply do not yield themselves in that direction. And although we're dealing with scanty material, it is always safest to base one's views on actual evidence rather than mere opinion. So what, what Wallace is saying is he looks through the history and he's searching a bunch of Greek manuscripts. The church fathers didn't even agree. And I'm talking like second and third century, they would say Junia was a male or a female, that close to the events. So as Wallace looks at it, he says, there's a little bit of evidence leaning toward feminine. There's nothing leaning toward masculine. So why don't we just go with feminine for right now until we get this research done? So we're, we're assuming that, um, that Junia is a woman. Uh, here's where the problem comes. If she's a woman, what does it mean to be outstanding among the, uh, the uh, apostles? So it says, um, where'd she go? Verse seven, there, there they are. Uh, they are well known to the apostles is how the ESV translates it. The NIV says outstanding among the apostles. The New American Standard says outstanding in the view of the apostles. And the New Century version just goes all cards on the table. They are very important apostles. So here's the question. Are Andronicus and Junia apostles 
or are they people who are well-known, the apostles are very familiar with them? And, and again, this comes back to the question, if Junia is a woman and Junia is an apostle, then we have biblical evidence that a female had a position of authority within the church, that she was in a leadership role. And therefore, we have read 2 Timothy 3 incorrectly, and we should be appointing female elders who are qualified. So that's, that's the direction of the argument here. There's even a, a church or website and a ministry called the Junia Project. They, they maintain that that's the proper reading of this, that Junia is an apostle. So it comes down to the question of what does it mean when it says outstanding among the apostles? Does that mean that here of all the apostles that are around, these two stand out? In other words, they're part of the group of the, the apostles, or does it mean they're outstanding and the apostles are aware of them? And, and the apostles' view of Junia and Andronicus is that they're outstanding. Um, again, going with, with um, Daniel Wallace, he does a lot of work on the words outstanding and in and the way they're constructed, and I'll save you the, the technical details, but here's how he says it in the end. He says, in sum, until further evidence is produced that counters the working hypothesis, we must conclude that Andronicus and Junia are not apostles, but were known to the apostles. To be sure, our conclusion is tentative, but it's always safer to stand on the side of some evidence than on the side of none at all. So my take on Andronicus and Junia is probably a husband and wife team, and they were known amongst the apostles. The apostles knew of them. And if that's not the right reading, if we look at them and say they were apostles, then we have to ask the question, what does apostle mean in this context? Well, the way I understand apostle used in the New Testament, beyond the 12, there's an official role called the 12, and that's the 12 apostles, the ones that Jesus sent. We know that Andronica and Junius can't be part of them because in Acts chapter 1, we saw them replace uh, Judas, who had committed suicide. Paul himself refers to himself as an apostle. But he also refers to Barnabas as an apostle. So my take on apostle in this sense is what we would call missionary, because apostle means sent one, one who is sent out. So if Andronicus and Junia are a husband and wife team and they are apostles, they're not part of the 12. They are what we would call missionaries. And they are outstanding missionaries, apparently, because Paul says that they are laboring in the Lord, that they were in the Lord before him and those kind of things. So that's the controversy on that one. And then the last one I want to point to before we back up and put this all back together is Tertius. In, um, in 16 verse 22, what it says is, I, Tertius, wrote this letter. Wait, what? The letter begins in verse 1, Paul, a servant of, the, of, Jesus, or of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So did Paul write it? Or did Tertius? Um, the, the simple, most straightforward answer is yes, exactly. <laughs> when you look at what a lot of Paul's letters, he mentions sometimes at the end, I'm writing this in my own hand. This is the way I write. In Galatians, he says, I write with such large letters. The theory is Paul had bad eyesight. Because when he compliments the Galatians, he said, when I came to you, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. So maybe he had a real bad eye problem. So when he picked up the pen at the end of his letter and wrote, it would be in huge letters. Now, 
Romans is a big letter. If Paul wrote it himself, it would be just volumes because of his big lettering. So Tertius would be his secretary, or the technical term is amanuensis, the guy who wrote it down. So Paul would be standing there dictating, and and Tertius would be writing it down. That's a pretty simple answer, I think, pretty straightforward. Um, But I just wanted to get those names clear before we go any further. So what do you do with a long list of names? What do you do when you're reading through the scripture and you get to a long list of names like this? How do you handle the first part of Chronicles, which is just genealogy after genealogy? How how do you deal with uh, Luke chapter three, which is Jesus genealogy? And a lot of those names that appear in those things just never show up again. How is this written for our instruction? What are we supposed to gain from this if we know nothing about them? Well, I think the best way to handle these kind of passages of scripture is to step back and take a look at the broad scope of the thing. What's going on? So you go through and you look for names that stand out, like we did this morning with those five people. Or if you're going through a genealogy, it's so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and his sister so-and-so. Wait, why is she there? So you look for those things that, that kind of pop out at you. So when we look at this, the center, central point is not those five people. I, I think when you look at it and you say, what is the most repeated word in this, in this section? It's the word greet. I think I counted 21 times. Yeah, 21 times it repears. What do you think Paul means to do here? Greet people. But look at who he's greeting for a moment. Back up and say, now, now who's involved in this greeting? Who is, he, who is he reaching to? First of all, it's written to the church in Rome the center of the universe at that time. That was the the capital of the the empire that dominated the world. He writes to Rome. Paul is from Tarsus and he's lived or he's sent out by the church in Antioch. So now we're going from Asia into Syria. And so there's part of where the gospel is went. Sencria is the church from that Phoebe was well known in. That's a city near Corinth. So if you picture Greek, it's got the big blob at the bottom and the thing at the top, there's a little isthmus that connects the two. Sencria is right there in that area. So now we're talking Greek. Paul meets Aquila in Acts chapter 18 in Rome, and or in Corinth rather, and Aquila's from Rome. So now you get to see there's a lot of movement going on. Asia is mentioned. That's, as I said, main, um, modern day Turkey. All the churches of Christ. So the first thing you notice about this greeting is how, how far the church has spread. It, it, it's only been, this is probably written around 52, 53 AD. That means it's 30 years since Jesus died and rose again. Ramey and I, when we were in here practicing on Thursday, we were talking about oldies. Uh, K-Earth 101, oldies. Uh, last time I ever listened to it, it was playing 1950s doo-wop. And when I came back and I tuned past it, all of a sudden they're playing the police. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not oldies. That's only the 80s. But when we were here in the 80s, 30 years earlier was the 50s. And we're here now and 30 years earlier is the 80s. So 30 years, especially for an old guy like me, is not that much. It's pretty short span. So think of what was was going on in the the 80s or uh, 30 years ago. That's a pretty short span of time. And in that time, The gospel, the church has spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now it's heading out into the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul is heading to Rome. He says, I want to come and visit you at Rome because I want you to to, uh, equip me and be with me as I go now into Spain. 
So he's spreading the gospel out in 30 short years. The gospel is ready to go across the globe. And so this reminds us of that, that, that statement at the beginning. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone. And, and that's what we're seeing is the church is going out. God's power is going throughout the world. What God accomplished in Jesus' resurrection is rolling forward and nothing can stop it. Consider the range of the church. Look at some of these names. Some are obviously Jews. Aquila and Prisca are, are obviously Jews. Um, they're called that in, in Romans 18. Andronicus and Junia are said to be Paul's kinsmen, which means that they're related. They're not, maybe not related in family, but at least in the nation. Um, Andronicus and Junia, Mary and Herodian, these are all Jews. Mary is a very Jewish name. There are tons of Marys. That's why we have a hard time figuring out who was at the foot of the cross. There's so many Marys involved. So there's Jews, there's Gentiles, which is most everybody else on the list. The gospel has not only spread across the world, it's spread across those divisions. Pay attention to the women involved in this list. Prisca, Mary, Junia, Typhrina, uh, Typhosia. <laughs> Rich, I'm right there with you, buddy. This is hard to pronounce. Tryphena and Tryphosa, Perseus, Rufus's mother, Julia, and then I noticed another one that I missed on my list, um, uh, Nearest's sister. So women are in involved in this. Women are included in this. So this isn't an exclusively male club. This isn't the Elks or something. This is spreading across ge uh, geography. It's spreading across ethnic lines. It's spreading across um, uh, sex lines. It's, it's going to women and men together. Um, Phoebe, who was a patron of Paul and many others, she must have been pretty well off. If she could afford to support all these missionaries, she must have had quite a bit of money. Prisca and Aquila were tent makers, according to Acts 18, which would make them small business owners. So it's, it's traveling across economic lines. And, and, and think about uh, Erastus. He's the city treasurer in whatever city they're in. That's a pretty high, important position. This, this guy probably had access to money. So the gospel is spreading across the globe. It's spreading across racial lines. It's spreading across social economic lines. And, and look at, it's not just something as impersonal as an ad campaign. Look at the emotion that's involved in this. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. They're, 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 everybody's so thankful for what's going on there. My beloved in the Lord is a phrase that said, my beloved Stykes, um, she has been a mother to me as well. So it's not just distant relation, you know, waving um, relationships. Hi, you know, um, don't, don't want to know you, but, you know, greetings. Um, kind of like when you nod to your neighbor when you're heading to the mailbox or something. There's an emotional bond across all of these lines. There, there is genuine affection in all of these lines. How is that possible? The other way, the way that's possible is the other phrase that is repeated quite a bit. It happens in Christ. Verse 3, uh, Prisca and Aquila. Verse 9, Urbanus. Verse 12, uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa um, and Perseus are all workers in Christ. Epinetus is a convert to Christ. Andronicus and Junia were in Christ before Paul. And Politus was beloved in the Lord. Apelles is approved by Christ. 
those of the uh, house of the family of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Rufus was chosen of the Lord. So how can, how can the gospel do this? How can it spread across all these divisions and all these different lines? Because the gospel is the power of God. Not social power, not, not um, uh, advertising power, not persuasive power. It is something that goes beyond all that. It is a supernatural power. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone. And everyone means everyone. There's no class or type of people who are excluded from that. It is the power of God to reach across the globe, to reach across economic lines, to reach men and women, to reach all over the place. And it's in Christ. And that's, that's the power for that. So the personal nature of this, as I mentioned, he says Greek 21 times, and then he mentions 27 people by names, by their household, or by the churches that meet in their homes. This, this shows Paul's connection. Now, one of the questions comes up, did Paul know all of these people, even though he's never been to Rome? And the simple answer is, I don't know. It doesn't really matter, because if you look at uh, verse uh, 21 through 23, there's a bunch of people who are sending their greetings. Timothy greets you. Lucius and Jason and Sassipater, uh, my kinsman, Tertius, who wrote the letter, greets you. Gaius and the whole uh, church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and the Quinturus greet you. So it might not be Paul knows each one of these people in individual. Some of them you know he does because Rufus's mother was a mother to me. And, and Aquila and Priscilla risked their neck for me and those kinds of things. But these other ones, it might be these other folks are going, hey, would you say hi to? So it's, that's not a problem that there's a lot of people there if Paul hasn't been there. The way the section ends, though, is greet one another with a holy kiss. I, I talked about the emotional connection between people. It's a holy kiss. Now, in some churches, it, they've turned the holy kiss into a formal uh, turn around and greet your neighbor. Say hi to your neighbor. And, and that's not a bad thing. It's not something we do, but it's not a bad thing to do to turn around and say good morning to folks. Um, but I don't think that meets the requirement. I don't think you've, you can check that off and go, I greeted them with a holy kiss by waving across two rows of chairs at them. It's, that's not what's going on. Um, do we then kiss each other on the cheek? Well, it's not in our culture. That's not, that would be uncomfortable. That would not be greeting for some of us. That would be, ah, they're going to touch me. I was just going to say, and in a pandemic, please don't greet each other with a holy kiss. So can we do this? How can we comply with what Paul is saying here? I think the way we can comply with this is hospitality, is to greet each other warmly, not formally, not distantly, but to greet each other warmly. How do you greet somebody warmly? Well, you, it's hard to do if you don't know them. So what we have to do, and this is a challenge because we're in a pandemic and we've got people on camera and we've got people in person, and, but we've got to figure out a way to greet each other with a holy kiss, warmly acknowledge each other, welcome each other, be kind to each other. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone. The church has spread across the globe. There, you have no reason for a distinction between you and somebody else. If we learn anything from this section, it is Jesus has obliterated those distinctions, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female. They're all done away with. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Be warm to each other. Welcome each other. And so having said that, the next section is titled, Who Not to Welcome? <laughs> this is not hypocritical. <laughs> Let me just remind you of what it says. I appeal to you, brothers 
to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So when Paul talks about welcome each other with a holy kiss and, and breaking down these barriers and these barricades and saying, come in and be, be with us and let's, let's be friends. Don't forget there's that one phrase that's repeated in that section, in Christ. This is not, we have to be hospitable to everybody in the universe. We need to love our neighbors, but that doesn't need, mean that we welcome them in the exact same way we would welcome a brother or sister in Christ. So who are these people? He says, I appeal to you, watch out for those and, and avoid them. Who are they? They are ones who cause divisions. They're, they're people who come into the church and the first thing they do is start talking about what's wrong. There are people who come in and, and they have this wonderful doctrine that they're really excited about and they just can't wait to tell you about it. And you have never heard that before in your life. What are you talking about? I was in a church where uh, somebody came in and said, you don't have to pay taxes. I can prove to you from the Bible. You don't have to pay taxes. That's, that's looking for trouble. It's just causing division. Because I can point to things that say pay taxes. Jesus paid taxes. Jesus gave money in P or to Peter and said, Peter, you pay the taxes. So when somebody comes in with something like that, this, this odd doctrine, you have to take a step back and go, are they, creating are they creating divisions? Are they just trying to split the church? And usually it's based on me. Look at me. I'm the one who'll tell you the truth. So we have to be careful. We have to watch out for those people who cause divisions. And, and the people who are first charged with that are the elders. They are told to shepherd the flock of Christ. And so our first thing is we have to watch out for wolves and shoot them. When they come into the flock, we have to be David and go chase them off. So we have to, we have to chase off those who create doc, uh, obstacles with doctrine contrary to what you've been taught. What doctrine, what's the most important doctrine we have learned from the book of Romans so far? You are justified by faith alone. You are, you are not just declared innocent by faith alone. You are declared actively righteous you are given the righteousness of God. Jesus, his own righteousness has been applied to your account. So if someone comes in with a doctrine contrary to that, even if it's not a frontal assault that says, oh, no, you're not justified by faith alone. They, they come in, oh, yeah, you're justified by faith alone. But, you know, if you don't do this, if, if your clothing is not like this, you know, are you? Are you really? It, it, any number of things. You could pick any topic and somebody will find a way to creep that into justification by faith alone and purity. Justification by faith alone and proper understanding of Israel. Justification and, by faith alone and we have to start with justification by faith alone. So they, they come in with doctrine that, that is contrary to what we've been taught and they create obstacles. Now, what is the nature of this type of person? This person does not serve their Lord, but their own appetites. And, and that's one of the big red flags for this is when that person is the center of attention. And I'm telling you, they're not going to come in and be mean and expect to be in the center of attention. They could come in and be very 
charismatic and very, and I don't mean like speaking in tongues, but charismatic as in very attractive and very beautiful and, and complimentary to all of you. And this is the best church I've ever been in. And, and look at all these wonderful people. And isn't that great? And then the next thing you know, they're leading people off to their own little things. They're feeding their own appetite. They're, they're, they're beginning to feed their own desire to be important. They feed their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. The word behind that naive is not evil. It's, it's those who are very young in the faith. They're, they're not stupid, but they're very young in the faith. They, they, they have not grown enough, and so they can be lured by these folks. And, and so we have to watch out for that. Those are the kind of people that we don't want to have anything to do with. So welcome the saints. Open your arms, open your hearts, open your home. Welcome the saints. But when somebody like this shows up, watch out. You see, the, the danger of opening your arms is anything can come in. So we have to be careful with that. The gospel, as the gospel goes out across the world, as it succeeds in spreading, it will attract people like this because they think that they can get what they're after in that. So don't be naive toward them. Be a little suspicious. Be a little cautious with them. Now, verse 20 is another one of the verses that um, just pops off the page. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That sounds like Genesis 3, 3, uh, 15, when when, um, God is cursing the serpent. He says that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will be at war and he will crush your head. And so it seems like that's what he's saying. And I really wanted this to say that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under Christ's feet but it doesn't. But it does. It does. How will, how will God crush Satan under our feet? Will it be because of our strength and our ability? And No, it, he will crush Satan under our feet because we have been justified by faith. By being justified by faith, God has removed from Satan his great tool for controlling people. The fear of death is gone. You don't have to be afraid to die. You're going to appear in heaven as if you are Jesus Christ walking in the front door. So Satan's power is broken. He's going to crush Satan under your feet. So that's something that God is working to do. That's how he's spreading his gospel out. It's not divorced from what he said. It's part of it. Watch out for these, these people who cause divisions. Watch out for these people with contrary doctrines because Christ is going to crush them under your feet. As we preach the gospel, as we teach clear doctrine, as we practice this loving relationship that he's talking about, we will crush Satan under our feet. God is doing that. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Not our power, but God's power. And so God will crush Satan. And then verse 20 ends with a beautiful, brief benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You want to greet somebody with a holy kiss? There's the line. The grace of Jesus Christ be with you. I think that's a beautiful way to say that. Um, Just as uh, an aside real quick, if you're looking, if you're paying attention in your Bible, uh, I want you to look at chapter 16, verse 24. It's not there. At least not in the ESV. Uh, Some verses, some versions have it. In the earliest, most reliable manuscripts, Um, that same phrase, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, was appended uh, at the end of verse 23. 
And so uh, in the earliest manuscripts, that's not there. It's only said once. So it appears to be a scribal error. Somebody's finger slipped on the page and they wrote it twice. And then it wound up getting copied into some other um, manuscripts. Uh, so you're not missing anything in your Bible. Verse 24 is intentionally not there. Um, probably wasn't in the original. So what we've seen is who to welcome. Welcome the saints. Welcome the church because they are the work of God. That, that's what's happened. Who not to welcome. There are troublemakers who are going to sneak in. They're going to just try to align themselves with us. You can wave goodbye as they leave. No heartbroken at all. It's not our responsibility to convert them at that point. Uh, they will have heard proper doctrine. If they still reject it, it's on them. Uh, so don't welcome them. And then the whole book ends with the glorious benediction. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the uh, prophetic writings, has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Why do we do all of this? Why would we do all of this? And Paul answers it. It is glory forever through Jesus Christ to God. So why is the gospel the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes? because that will bring the maximum amount of glory to God through Jesus Christ. That's the point of it. So look again at his benediction. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Strengthen, does that mean convert? Is that salvation? Well, no. Remember we talked about what happens after I'm justified by faith? Do I just leave any way I want? No. You have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so as you're being conformed to the image of Christ, you are being strengthened. As you're growing in that, it is God who is able to strengthen you. So if you remember when we talked about sanctification, I said, is that your work or is that God's? And the answer is yes, it's both. Because sanctification is growing to be Christ-like, and God has given you commandments. You should do these things. This is what you do. And so it is God's work as he's accomplishing it in you, but he's telling you the way to get there is you must do these things so that you will grow in grace. It is him who is able to strengthen you and we get saved by hearing the gospel and then we don't need it. No, we, he is strengthening you according to my gospel, in line with my gospel. To be reminded again, you are justified by faith alone. You receive Christ's righteousness through faith alone. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, saying it over and over again. Now, he mentions the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for ages and has now been disclosed. Um, we often think of a mystery as, you know, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or something. You know, we've got to go out and solve these, these clues or something. That's not the biblical meaning of mystery. Uh, the way the New Testament handles the mystery kept secret for long ages is it is a promise that now this side of Christ, we look and we go, it's everywhere. It's clear. But it was harder to see before Jesus came. And that is the salvation of the Gentiles. The Jews had a hard time recognizing that, but there are New Testament passages that say the mystery was that you will be included. So that goes back to that first section, doesn't it? Who to welcome? Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, rich and poor. That, that, that's the, the uh, mystery hidden for ages is that everybody wouldn't be included in this gospel. And it's now been made uh, disclosed and through prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations. 
as that gospel goes out, as it travels across borders, it's going to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. This is not something people made up and said, gee, wouldn't it be great if? This is not the best Amway sales pitch there ever was. This is the command of God. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You will carry this forward to the glory of the only wise God forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is Paul's wrapping up of the book of Romans for us and bringing it to a completion to a head. And I think it's brilliant the way he does it with those lists of names. He's showing us this is real. This affects human beings. It affects actual people. It's not just some academic work you study that, that you know, has numbers in it. This is real faces. You can see Paul talking about um, Herodias, my, my kinsman. And you could just see him saying, you know, that's my cousin. I love him. He's a great guy. He had, they have people in mind. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a power of salvation to every one, every person, every human being. It was then and it is now. It, it continues to be relevant to all of them. Thus ends the book of Romans. <laughs> Way too soon. But can we go back and do it again? Should we just start back over? I, I want a second shot at it. Um, so what we're going to do next week is Easter. He is risen. Okay, Bill Gully, who used to be in this church, put on Facebook a horrible joke, and I am ashamed to say it, but this is Palm Sunday, and he put, he was, he has ridden. I did the same thing, and then laughed hysterically. So uh, next Sunday is Easter Sunday, and we'll do the same thing, but it, that will be not a soft opening, that'll be a hard opening. And that doesn't mean we compel everybody to come in. What it means is we'll advertise it a little bit more, put some stuff on social media and that kind of stuff. Um, we'll look at uh, Psalm 22, which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we'll see how that transitions. And then the week after that, we'll do uh, Psalm 13, which is a Psalm of lament. And then after that, we'll start in the book of Daniel. And, um, and so we want to see how to live faithfully in a world that isn't. I haven't figured out a good title for that yet, but that's where we're going to go with, our, with preaching in the, in the future. Let me close this in prayer now. Lord, you are the author of reality. As you spoke it, it is. That's the way it is. The Bible, as it speaks about reality, is not your wish. It's not your ideal. It is your interpretation of this reality. It is showing how reality actually functions. And Lord, in this reality that you have spoken, that you have authored, that you are carrying forward, you have done something amazing in the center of it. You've brought to earth your son and you have sent out the gospel. And the gospel, Lord, is your power in this reality to save people. To not make them savable, to not make it so that they could possibly be saved, but to save people. It is the power of God for salvation. But it's not saving everybody, Lord. It's to those who believe, to those whom you've called. And so, Lord, would you wedge in our hearts and our minds this glorious truth that we are justified by faith alone, period, faith alone, so that we may never wander from the path. Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you build us up, accomplish your predestined purpose in us, conform us to the image of Christ? And Lord, may we see and greet each other with a holy kiss, warmly, genuinely from the heart, as we recognize the gospel spreading across all sorts of lines.
to your glory, to the glory of God, we pray. Amen.